The passage this morning is from John 1, 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to him, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. I'll never forget, years ago, I met Phil Mickelson. If you're a golf fan, you know Phil Mickelson. Uh, I was at a golf tournament. It was the, one of the practice rounds uh, with my buddy, and we were kind of following some golfers around. And, and in practice rounds, it's really nice because you can get close. You know, the ropes are pretty empty. You can get right up towards the players. And so we kind of got hold of Phil Mickelson and who he was going with, and we came to a par three where I saw that after he teed off and he would be walking down to the green, the, uh, the, the spectator rope got really close to the little fairway that he would walk on. So I told my buddies, I said, I'm going to meet Phil Mickelson. I'm going to talk to him. So he tees off, and he starts, you know, how kind of Phil Mickelson lumbers, and he's just lumbering down the fairway. And so I'm walking along the rope, and I get to where, you know, he's, getting, he's really pretty close. And I said, I said, hey, Phil, how's the course playing? And uh, he turned to me, and if you've ever seen Phil Mickelson in his post-round interviews, he kind of had that goofy smile on his face, you know, and he says, he says, uh, really good, have you played it? And uh, I said, no. And, and I was frozen. Phil Mickelson was striking up conversation with me. I didn't know what to do. And so we had this kind of awkward three seconds of staring at each other. It was the most awkward first meeting I have ever had. So we stared at each other, and then I turned and walked away. And that was it. That was my meeting with Phil Mickelson. The door was wide open, and I just, I, I don't know what happened. I never freeze in conversation. I did that day. Um, it was just, it was so awkward and so not what I had expected. When you read this account of, of Jesus meeting the disciples, uh, you get this sense, and very early on with Andrew, a, a somewhat of an awkward meeting, because John the Baptist 
says, says, behold, the Lamb of God. Makes this announcement that obviously Jesus is walking by. And as Jesus walks by, it says that Andrew started to follow him. And you get this sense. So Andrew and the, the other disciple, which we presumably is the author of the, this gospel, John, is the other disciple, they just start following Jesus. And you get the sense that Jesus is walking along and he finally turns around. He sees there's two guys following him. And he turns around, he says, what are you seeking? Now we're gonna get into that. Uh, and they, they kind of mumble and say, uh, uh, well, where are you staying? It, it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta read the story at face value. It, it, is a, it is somewhat of an awkward first meeting, for Andrew at least, and, and, and John. But what you see as you read through the gospels and even the other gospels, the synoptics, is that this, this first meeting was the beginning of something that was absolutely life-changing and life-altering for Andrew, for John, Philip, Nathaniel, who we're gonna see in this passage, but all the disciples. That they had a, an initial meeting that began this relationship over three years and beyond that was absolutely transforming. So it begs the question, as we read in this Gospel of John, the first encounter between Jesus and his disciples, when they meet him, it begs the question, what happens when you meet Jesus? What happens? And we're going to look at the, the invitation of Jesus to answer this question, the promises of Jesus, and then the response of discipleship. So let's start with the invitation. As I said, Jesus turns around, and before he gives the invitation, he asks a question. And he says, what are you seeking to Andrew and John? Now, on face value, it seems like the question is, what do you want? What do you want? But it's not. Jesus is actually asking a very heart-probing question here. He's saying, what is your heart seeking? Why are you following me? What are you looking for as you follow me? The reason we know it's a heart question is because as we move through the Gospel of John, you'll see encounters like this over and over where people meet Jesus and oftentimes he challenges them around what they're seeking. In fact, if you go to John chapter six, which we'll get to, when he feeds 5,000 people, he feeds the 5,000, then he gets in a boat and he goes to the other side of the sea. And the crowd is clamoring for him. And so they race around the other side of the sea and they, they get to him. And Jesus says, truly, truly, you're seeking me. He uses that word, you're seeking me not because of the signs, meaning not because of who I am, but rather because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, I gave you a steak dinner and you want another one, right? You found a Pez dispenser that was kicking out sugar tablets and you need another one. That was what he was essentially saying to them. He wasn't impressed that the crowds followed him. He wasn't impressed that they were clamoring after him because he knew why they were coming after him. And so this question, what are you seeking, is very much a heart question that Jesus is asking, that Jesus is concerned with our motives, with our affections, with everything within our heart, our ambitions that would cause us to follow him. Jesus is concerned with your behavior. He certainly is, but he's more concerned with where that behavior's coming from. What deep within your heart is going on. And so when he says, what are you seeking? It's the question he starts with in the gospel of John, because his ultimate goal is to absolutely resurrect your heart. 
to absolutely reorder your loves, to absolutely transform your ambitions. That's what he's seeking. So when we, ask, when we wonder, why did Jesus start with that question? Why did he ask that question, what are, we see, what are you seeking? The first answer is because Jesus' primary concern is your heart. Second, though, why does he ask that question? It's because he wants you to explore the unknown of your heart. He doesn't ask that question because he doesn't know what was in Andrew and John's heart, right? He's God, he's omniscient, he knows everything. Of course he knew what was in their heart and what they were seeking. He asked it because they didn't know, probably. And he asked it of us because we oftentimes don't know what really is in our hearts and, and, and what's going on in our hearts and what our longings and our ambitions are. Let me give you a, a, a word picture to try to explain this, okay? I want you to imagine that you walk up to, you're out on a hike one day in a, in, in a beautiful kind of mountainside valley, and you walk up to a creek that's set in this beautiful landscape, but you walk up to the creek and what you see is just wrong. There's trash in this creek. There's, there's empty soda cans that have been there for a long time, bags of empty chips, and there's a, there's a film over the water, and you say, this is just wrong. You can't walk away from it. So before you leave, you begin cleaning up the trash in the creek and you take the soda cans away and, and you make some progress in a couple hours. And you say, you know, I'm gonna come back the next day. This is just wrong. This has to get cleaned up. You go home, you come back the next day and there's more trash. And it's worse than what you left. And you're thinking, there's no way somebody came and dumped their trash between yesterday and today. What's going on? And then you smell something in the air kind of upstream. And so you start walking upstream of this creek and you see, once you get up there, this, this garbage dump that's along the side of the creek. And the trash is just spilling into the creek and the, the stuff is seeping into the creek. And you realize, wow, if, I, if I'm gonna clean this creek up, I've gotta get to the source. Right? I've gotta clean up this, um, this, this garbage dump. When Jesus says, what are you seeking? He's asking that because he knows that most of the time we have no idea what's going on inside of our hearts. That we are a people, let me just say it this way. We are a people that are addicted to cleaning up trash downstream. Meaning that we are addicted to cleaning up our behavior, treating what we see at the forefront in this just our, our behavior. And Jesus asked, what are you seeking? Because he wants us to, to stop cleaning up the trash in front of us and go to the source, which is our heart. And oftentimes, and I'll say it this way, the garbage dump of our hearts, all those motives and those ulterior motives that, that are pinging in our hearts and causing us to do what we do. And so what's his answer? How does he help us see inside of our hearts? Well, it's verse 39, the, the actual invitation, which is to come and see. He says, come and see. And he says to us, come and see, which means Jesus invites us to go on a journey with him. And what he does is he takes us upstream <laughs> and he goes upstream to that, 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 that garbage dump, so to speak. He goes into our hearts and honestly, sometimes it's a scary place to go. If you have ever done uh, the, the work of peeling back the onion layers of your heart to see what's inside, Man, if you've done it with integrity and honesty, what you find oftentimes is scary. 
the desires, the thoughts you have towards other people, the reasons why you do what you do, right? That, and yet Jesus is saying, I want you to go there. I'm gonna invite you to come with me. Now, because that is oftentimes a scary thing to do, if you're honest with yourself, we don't go on our own. And that's why Jesus invites us. He says, listen, I know you won't go there on your own. It's too scary, so come with me. And as we go, then he says, I'm gonna give you a couple promises that are gonna give you assurance and comfort as we look into the sinfulness of your heart. And that brings us to our second point of what are the promises? So as he invites us on this journey to do some deep heart work and what goes on inside, he gives us two incredible promises that allow us to say, yes, Jesus, with that assurance and comfort, I'm coming with you. And I will look and I will go to the source right, so that you can change me. So what are those promises? The first one is this. In Jesus, you will be transformed. Look at verse 42. Look at what Jesus says to Simon. He says, Simon, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Now, just in that short sentence, look what he says to Simon. He acknowledges who he is and where he comes from, son of John. But then he says, I'm going to altogether make you a different person. I'm going to give you a new name, Cephas, which in Aramaic means the rock. Now, if you know Simon's life, Simon Peter's life as a disciple, it took a while for this who he was and who he was gonna become, what, what name Jesus gave him, it took a while. Because even by the end of three years at the crucifixion, what do we, where do we find Simon Peter? Fear, cowering, denying Jesus three times. It wasn't until Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, that Peter began to grow into the name that Jesus gave him, which was the rock. That transformation took time. And so what we learn here is that, that Jesus is in the business of remaking you, renaming you completely. 2 Corinthians 5, the old has gone, the new has come. You're a new creation in Christ. He's about remaking you and he doesn't, he calls you out of something and he calls you to something. But the weight of what is most important to him and that what's supposed to be most important to us is what he calls us to, not what he calls us out of. Because if, 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 we, if you focus on what you're called out of, you get in a world of problems. Let me give you an example of this. So when we look at the disciples that Jesus called, he called 12 of them. Uh, two of them, let me explain who they were. One was Simon the Zealot. Now this is not Simon Peter who's in this passage. Simon the Zealot. Who was Simon the Zealot? Well, he was a Jewish nationalist, which meant that he was about inciting rebellion and, and by force thought that he could rally people, that's who the zealots were, to overthrow the Roman Empire and usher in the kingdom of God by force and restore Israel. He was a zealot, Simon the Zealot, Jewish nationalist. Matthew the tax collector was another disciple of Jesus. Matthew the tax collector was a traitor who had joined the forces of the Roman Empire as a tax collector who was ripping off his own people, the Israelites. Prior to Jesus calling these two men, they were utter enemies. In fact, Simon would have wanted to kill a man like Matthew, right? For betraying and joining the Romans. 
And Matthew would have been the guy who would have wanted to rip Simon off of all the money he had by charging extra taxes, right? So you get this picture of two men who prior to being called to Jesus were utter enemies. And after they're called, they're sitting at the same table with Jesus on the same team, so to speak, because all they had in common at that point was Jesus. But the point is this, they were called from something very different, a Jewish nationalist, a traitor who had partnered with the Roman Empire, but they were called to a commonness in Jesus, and that was what Jesus was concerned about, the focus. I suppose it would look something like this today. A white nationalist who marched in Charlottesville, Virginia several weeks ago, and a Black Lives Matter member sitting in the same community group or the same Bible study or the same Sunday service next to each other worshiping Jesus. That's actually not very different from what we find with Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector and what Jesus is doing. And the emphasis that Jesus wants us to see and the importance needs to be put on what we're called to, not what we're called from. And here's why. If the emphasis is on what you're called from, then we begin to segregate into huddles. So we become white nationalists who worship Jesus together or Black Lives Matter people who worship Jesus together or Republicans who worship Jesus together or Democrats who worship Jesus together or white collar people who worship Jesus together or blue collar people who worship Jesus together or Florida Gator fans who worship Jesus together or Georgia Bulldog fans who worship Jesus together. No. No, it's people worshiping Jesus, worshipers of Jesus who come from vastly different backgrounds and vastly different broken backgrounds. And so Jesus says, I am remaking you. I'm giving you a new name. And I want you to focus on what I'm calling you to primarily. And this is what the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet talks about in Isaiah 62. And what he's prophesying here is what we realize in Jesus Christ as life, death, and resurrection. Listen to what he says. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. See, when Jesus says, come and see, and he says, I want you to go do some, some serious heart work and go into the darkness of your heart with me, he says, come and see, because listen, in me, Jesus says, you will be transformed. You will have a new name. And so you can look. And you can honestly look, knowing that Jesus is gonna bring transformation. The second promise he gives that allows us or enables us or helps us to respond to this invitation is this. In Jesus, you will find the dwelling place of God. Now we get here to the story of Nathaniel and Nathaniel's interaction with Jesus, which is a very interesting interaction. And it begs a lot of questions. Verses 47 to 51. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, what did Jesus mean by this? Well, 
when you read through verse 51, you see that Jesus is talking about the story of Jacob in Genesis 27 and Genesis 28. And specifically, in that story, we find that Jacob had a twin. His name was Esau. Esau was older, just barely. They were twins. Uh, But what we learn in Genesis 27 is that Isaac, their father, right, said to his son Esau, your brother Jacob came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. If you know the story, Jacob tricked Esau. He deceived Esau and took his blessing. And, And Jacob became known, he and his descendants, as a bunch of schemers, deceitful people, right, that were out for selfish gain, using trickery for selfish gain. But then in Genesis 32, what happens? Jacob goes into a wrestling match with God and he comes out with a hurt hip and a limp for the rest of his life. But the key there is in Genesis 32, what does God do? He gives Jacob a new name. He says, you shall no longer be Jacob, which is the schemer. You shall be Israel. And so what Jesus is saying here to Nathaniel is, Nathaniel, you're in Israel. You're in Israel. Meaning that you're you're not coming with ulterior motives, that you are really coming to me to investigate and and to check out the claims of who I am. And so Nathaniel responds to this, what is a correct assessment. He says, he says to Jesus, how did you know me? Which means, man, Jesus, you know me. You've you've called me out correctly. And Jesus says, wow, if that supernatural knowledge impacted you, I'll tell you more. And then he says, what? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, what that is communicating is that Jesus was supernaturally pursuing Nathaniel, and Nathaniel realized it and responded to the supernatural pursuit with Jesus, you're the king of Israel. You're the Messiah, right? You're the, you're the one. And then Jesus goes on to say, listen, if, if those supernatural acts wowed you, you haven't seen anything yet. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now here, Jesus is referring directly to that story in Genesis 28, the story of Jacob's ladder where this ladder went from the earth up into the heavens and angels are descending up and down it. And Jesus, by quoting that, is saying that he is the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder, that in Jesus, heaven and earth meet, that the dwelling of God is with man, and that in Jesus, heaven and earth come together as they were in the beginning before sin ripped them apart. Now, now, why is this such a sweet promise? Because it's interesting, uh, Jacob, after that experience of, of the latter, he names that place Bethel, which means house of God. It means that in Jesus, we find the very dwelling place of God, the very house of God, the very presence of God. Why is this such a, a sweet promise? Because our hearts are restless. Our hearts are constantly seeking for rest, constantly seeking for home. And Jesus says, in me, you find home. You find rest. You find the very presence of God. There's a a fourth century theologian, St. Augustine, that writes this out of his confessions. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. 
and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. In Jesus Christ, your heart finds the very presence of God where your heart comes to rest and comes alive and you find transformation. Two incredibly valuable promises that Jesus gives you. As he says to you, come and see. Come upstream with me. I'm gonna take you to the depth of your heart. I will not let you settle at your behaviors. I'm taking you to the source and that's a scary place. And as he brings us to that place, he says, listen, don't fret. I'm gonna transform you. I'm gonna change you. I'm not gonna leave your heart like that. I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna begin changing it. And he says, in me, you're gonna find the dwelling place of God. You're gonna meet God and, and be intimate with God. Now, how do we respond? Right? So Jesus invites us. He gives us two incredible promises to assure us. How do we then respond? What is the response of, of discipleship, of, of, of following Jesus? And you're gonna see in this passage, I think there's two very critical uh, uh, noteworthy responses by the disciples. The first one is in verse 43. When Philip uh, says, uh, when Jesus says to Philip, follow me. Now that follow me, we see all over the gospels. What does it mean? Well, follow me implies disruption and interruption. What do I mean by that? Think about Andrew. It, it was not necessarily convenient for Andrew, who was following John the Baptist, to leave John the Baptist and follow Jesus. It wasn't easy for Simon Peter and James and John, who owned a fishing business, what we learn in the other gospels. It wasn't easy for them to leave their fishing business behind and follow Jesus. And it wasn't easy for Nathaniel to leave his prejudices behind and follow Jesus, right? His comment about Nazareth, I mean, it, that is a belittling comment. How can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, right? That, that, and Nathaniel had prejudices against Nazareth and people that came from there. And so when he learns that Jesus comes from there, right, it's, a, it's a disruption for Nathaniel to follow Jesus, right, who came from Nazareth. And what I want you to hear is this, that redemption and resurrection, which are what Jesus wants to do with your heart, aren't comfortable. There's a great um, scene in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, and it's the scene between uh, Susan and, and Mr. Beaver about the lion, who's the main character in the Chronicles of Narnia. The lion is the Christ figure. And listen to this interchange. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, Mr. Beaver said. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus isn't safe as we would define safe. But Jesus is good, and he's the king, and he's trustworthy. And the reason I say that is I don't, 
I don't know where you're at in your walk with Jesus. You may have been walking with him for 20 plus years. You may be very new to Christ in the past couple years. You may be not there yet. You may be investigating who Jesus is and his claims. What I want you to hear is that following Jesus means interruption and disruption. That I would be selling you a book of goods if I said, follow Jesus and your life will turn out great. You won't find that in the gospels. In fact, sometimes that when you follow Jesus and you say yes to him, sometimes the circumstances of your life get worse. And so there's proper expectations to know when Jesus says, follow me, he is not ensuring an easy life or a comfortable life. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have testimonies that you came to Christ and immediately all hell broke loose. And whoever led you to Christ or whatever context you came to Christ in, you said, what, what is this? I just came to Christ and my life has fallen apart. Listen, Jesus never promises pain-free comfort, easiness when you follow him. What he does promise is this, that your heart will come home. The circumstances of your life make it worse. They may get better. That's out, that's, that's off, that's out here. Your heart will come home and find rest in God. And when your heart is good and your heart is right and your heart is finding rest in God, having been bought by God through Jesus Christ, you're at rest. So what I want you to hear is the follow me is a command and it's, it's the invitation, it's the response that's gonna mean disruption probably, an interruption in your life. And then <laughs> that disruption and interruption happens over and over as you follow Jesus because ultimately this is a broken world and we have broken bodies and they don't work as they're supposed to and medical stuff happens and relationships go wrong and that is all a part of what it means to walk with Christ in a broken world. And when he says, follow me, he says, your heart's gonna come home. Your circumstances can go all over the place. So that's the first response, follow me. The second one you'll notice in verse 38 is when Andrew and presumably the second disciple, John, says, where are you staying? Now, that's an interesting response to what are you seeking? What do they answer? They answer with a question. You know what I think it is, is they didn't know. They didn't know. John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they obviously had been learning from John the Baptist and they went, well, this is the Messiah, I presume. This is the one all the scriptures speak about. And so Jesus says, what are you seeking? They didn't say, we're seeking you. They said, where are you staying? We want to get to know you. We've heard a lot from John the Baptist, but we want to sit down with you. And, when they, and this was about 4 p.m. in the day. So they went with Jesus and they sat with him. And they probably asked him questions. And he taught them and they learned. And what we learn here is that, is that the invitation that Jesus says, come and see, uh, is not an invitation to a product or an invitation to a transaction. It's an invitation to relationship. That Jesus Christ is inviting you into a relationship with him. That you would get to know him. Now, what does this mean for us today? We reread the gospel and literally, Andrew and John and Philip and Nathaniel, right, and, and Simon Peter, they literally followed Jesus, the physical Jesus. They walked with him for three years. What's it mean for us today? Jesus isn't here physically. 
He's at the Father's right hand. What does it mean to dwell with Jesus today? What are the resources to, to, to have relationship with him today? And there's two. There's two primary places or resources that we have to dwell with Jesus today, to have a relationship with him. And it is the scriptures that are living and active, right? That reveal who he is and the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, that dwells in us, that points us to Jesus, that weds us to Jesus, that connects us to Jesus. Those are the two primary resources. Now, how do those flesh themselves out? Even more practically, what does that mean? It means that, that you will meet with Jesus and get to know Jesus in his word and through prayer, which is simply the communication that you have with him and with the Father. Right? And so as you read the Bible, and as you honestly come to Jesus and pour out the ugliness of your heart and all that's going on, and you're transparent before him with the scriptures in front of you, and you're praying and you're meditating, that your hearts will find rest in the Father through the Holy Spirit with Jesus. And we've got a couple resources as we kind of launch a new church year that I'll point you to very specifically. One is community Bible reading, that you have the opportunity through our community Bible reading plan that's on the website, and you can find it, to, to engage with a chapter or two of Scripture every day uh, and, 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 and meet with Jesus. We've got Roman studies next week that are launching, which are an opportunity for you with other people to study the book of Romans and look for Jesus and find out who he is. And the other opportunity is to get integrated into a community group, this community of people that do life together, that, that get in the word together, that pray together. Now, as I lay all those out, let me just make this real clear. And this is what we would call personal worship, right? The, the, the personal worship of, of you in the word and in prayer, also with other people. Personal worship is not an obligation. It's not an obligation. It's a response. It's a response of worship to what Jesus has done for you, how he has accomplished your salvation, how he's pursued you, how he's drawn you to himself, how he said, come and see. And so the, the personal worship, it's not an obligation. It's not a guilt trip that's laid before you. It's an opportunity. Jesus says, I want to meet with you. And the way I'm going to meet with you is, is in my word that I've given you. So will you meet with me? Right? Will you enjoy my presence? Will you come and see? Let me, let me close by answering the question one more time, going back to an illustration. What happens when you meet Jesus? Let me take you back to that stream illustration. Right? So you, you you're trying to get the trash out of the stream and, and you realize that there's something upstream and Jesus says, hey, come with me. And so he takes you up and he, he shows you the garbage dump of your heart. He shows you the stuff in your heart. And, and then and as, you, as you look at that, you see the stream, there, these two promises come unpacked, right? He says, in, in Jesus, he says, in me, you're gonna be transformed. And, and as you look at this garbage dump, you see esca excavators and backhoes and bulldozers that are cleaning this thing up. He says, look what I'm doing to your heart. Look what I'm doing. I'm cleaning it. I'm transforming it. I'm making you new. I'm remaking you. All your motivations, your aspirations, your, your loves, your desires, look what I'm doing, Jesus says. And then you realize as you look at that garbage dump that Jesus is starting to clean up, you realize this stream doesn't start at the garbage dump. That upstream of the garbage dump, there's actually a beautiful stream. It's clean. It's crystal clear. And Jesus says, listen, your starting point is not your sin. 
Because the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3. The Bible starts in Genesis 1 and 2, which says you're made in the image of God. I mean, that's glorious, that you're made in the image of God. Yes, sin entered the world. And yes, your heart has become dark and, and, and full of sin and all that. That's the, that's the garbage dump. But Jesus says, listen, I made you in the image of God. You're made in my image and I'm gonna clean you up and restore you to my image fully one day when I return. And it won't look perfect until I too return. But that's what I'm, that's what I'm moving you towards. And so have hope. And when, I, when Jesus says, come and see, you say, yes, I wanna come and see because I wanna, I wanna experience those promises of transformation and of finding the dwelling place of God, which interesting, the dwelling place of God is in Jesus now. One day in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be a physical dwelling place. Brand new, no more sin, no more pain, suffering, all the stuff we experience. And so Jesus now with the Holy Spirit in you gives you that hope and says every day, will you come and see what I'm doing and where I'm taking you? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the pursuit of Jesus. We thank you for the invitation of Jesus that says, come and see. That Jesus, you invite us on a journey with you to look into our hearts, to see the sin, to see the brokenness, but to be reminded and promised that you are making us new that you have given us a new heart, that you are giving us a new heart in you. And Father, thank you for the promise that, that in Jesus we find you, God, your very presence, your very dwelling. And that all of this is hope with the spirit in us of glory one day, of one day when there will be no more sin and death and brokenness and crying and pain. And yet, Father, we experience that in part. Not perfectly, not fully, but we experience a taste of that in your presence, in your word, in prayer, in a relationship with Jesus. Father, I pray for those here this morning who maybe have never responded to the invitation of you, Jesus, that you, Holy Spirit, would draw them. And as they hear you say, come and see, that they would say yes, they would submit to you, Jesus, that they would follow you. They would bow to you. And Father, we realize this isn't just a one-time invitation. We, we wake up every morning with this invitation afresh and anew from our glorious Savior. Come and see. Would you come with me today? So Father, we answer yes. We do. And with your Spirit giving us the strength to bring about our obedience and our surrender and our submission to a wonderful Savior. And Father, as we close in worship now, may we sing with hearts rejoicing at what you've accomplished for us. Our salvation is a gift. Our oneness with you is a gift. And we want to experience that through your Spirit. And as we sing to you now, would you take what we're singing and the words that we're speaking and would you receive them as, as our feeble effort to praise you 
And Holy Spirit, would you quicken our hearts and revive them to walk out of here rejoicing with you, Jesus, in what we have. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.